Everybody, good morning. Good morning. My name is Aaron. Welcome to Wellspring. It's good to have you with us. If Before I get started, if you are a young kid and want to hang out with some other kids, Miss Trish and Mr. Jim are here in the back to my left. They love to hang out with you, so you're more than welcome to head that direction. Again, my name is Aaron. We're going to be continuing. And for those of us who are here with me uh, this morning, again, my name is Aaron. We're going to be continuing on in our series called The Unforced Rhythms of Grace, looking at what does it look like to adopt the practices and habits, the rhythms of grace of Jesus in order that we might become more and more like Jesus. Now, you might have noticed already that it's going to be a little bit different because, as Tony was mentioning earlier, it also is the first Sunday of Advent. And Advent is that word simply just means coming or longing. It's a beautiful tradition in the historic uh, Christian church calendar of the four Sundays sort of leading up to Christmas. Uh, Kind of a show of hands. How many of you are familiar with Advent at all? Kind of grew up maybe doing some of the candle lighting like that or having kind of a focus season here in December. You know, I think most of us are somewhat familiar with that. But the question that you might be having is, what does Advent then have to do with prayer, right? And I want to make the case as we go through today that those two are intimately connected. Because on one hand, Advent is all about the longing and expectation of God coming to be with us. To be with us. Think of Matthew chapter 1. Emmanuel, God with us. And at the same time, prayer is all about us sort of being with God. It's, It's a means of grace for us to be with the God who is known for many of us in the room. These two are going to be intimately connected. But before I kind of get into that, I know for many of us in the room, the Advent season, the Christmas season is, at least for me, probably my most favorite time of the whole year. You know, there's so much excitement, the anticipation. It's so fun seeing our little kids kind of grow up, uh, learning about Advent. We have some fun sort of family traditions we do as a family in regards to Advent. Uh, We have, you know, the other day I was playing with my son, Kaysen, and, you know, we're playing Legos. And just sort of randomly, Kaysen's like, you know, hey, Daddy, I'm I'm super excited for Christmas. And he says in his little two-year-old voice. And I go, oh, oh, buddy, why, why are you excited? And he goes, well, Dada... Grandma and Grandpa are going to come, and they're going to bring me a bike with pedals. <laughs> and Casey, he's at this age where he has, I don't know if you've seen those balance bikes, so they don't have any pedals. He just cruises on this thing. But then I was like, I didn't want to say it to him yet, but like, we're going to have to tell him, because at some point he needs to realize he's not going to get a bike with pedals this year. His, his older sister is. And, <laughs> and so as we're... T- as we're t- As we're talking about prayer, you can be praying for us about how we are going to navigate that one. But my point is, there's just so much anticipation and excitement with the Advent season. And yet, at this year, Advent and Christmas can often feel like one of the most hectic times of the year. Just the busyness, all the things on the calendar, whether it's a Christmas party or, you know, this city's going to light their Christmas tree, so we got to go to that one. And all these different things that we get to go to. It's, it's fun, it's exciting, but it can feel a little bit overwhelming. And I think this is where Advent comes in. Because Advent, I think, is this beautiful gift of, for us to intentionally slow down and remember, kind of as the saying goes, what is the reason for this season. And to be intentional about that. 
And so for our, our time this morning, what I want to do is first talk about Advent through the lens of God coming to be with his people, kind of tracing that through the Old Testament, culminating in the person of Jesus. And as we see Advent being about God coming to be with us in this season, we're also going to see how prayer is sort of kind of like our response, our way of being with God who is present to us. So Advent and prayer, these two intimately go together. Now, to kind of start our journey, I want to take us to the book of Exodus. Now, the book of Exodus is sort of like Israel's foundation story. It's kind of where everything sort of begins for God's people, the Israelites. In the very beginning of the Exodus story, God's people have been enslaved under the oppressive Pharaoh for a number of years. And God's people are praying in the beginning of Exodus with his people and groaning, the language of Exodus says, for God to come down to be with his people and to deliver them from slavery. Now I want to jump into a key moment in the Exodus story, Exodus chapter 3, the famous sort of burning bush scene. And God has told Moses, I am going to come down, I am going to be with you, and I'm going to deliver my people out of slavery. God in particular says this, Exodus 3, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. I have come down. See, God is coming down to be with his people, to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Now, as the story continues, God then says to Moses, hey, Moses, come. I'm going to send you, and you're going to deliver my people out of of slavery. Now, the moment God tells Moses, hey, Moses, I'm going to send you to deliver my people out of slavery, Moses says this. He asks this question. Who am I? Who am I, God? To deliver your people out of slavery. Now, what follows next, pay attention. The very next verse, verse 12, God's response. God says, I will be with you. I will be with you. Now, pause. Think about this. Did God answer Moses' question? Be the one to deliver. No, right? Moses asked, who am I? Who am I that I should be the one to deliver? God's response, I'll be with you. See, Moses, God's telling Moses, hey, Moses, you're asking the wrong question. It's not about who you are. It's not about kind of like your Myers-Briggs and your Enneagram type and, you know, you were born for this, you were made for this. God doesn't tell Moses, hey, Moses, you're a boss. You can do it. I've called you to this. He doesn't like pump him up with all this self-esteem. He doesn't even give him the line from Esther, you were born for such a time as this. He just simply says, I will be with you. That's what's most important. And as the Exodus story continues, God is with his people, delivering them through the ten plagues, the crossing of the Red Sea, the pillar of cloud by day, the, the, the pillar of fire by night, guiding his people. And as the story continues, God constantly is present with his people, but then there becomes this other interesting twist in the story. As Israel is out of slavery, they're in the wilderness, heading towards the promised land, so they think, They come to the base of this mountain. They receive the Ten Commandments. First two commandments. Have no other gods. Make no idols. The very next narrative, they make an idol and worship it as a god. The golden calf story. And at that moment, or that time in the golden calf story, Moses and God have this other interaction, this other exchange. Where God is promised land, but I'm not. God's like, you know, I'm done. Moses, people, you guys keep going into the promised land, but I'm not going to be with you. I'm I'm just going to, you know, start over. We're done. But Moses' interaction, Moses' reply is amazing. Exodus chapter 33, Moses says this back to God. 
if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. If your presence, if you are not going to be with us, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Now pay attention to this line. Is it not in your going with us that we are distinct, I and your people? Notice what Moses is saying there. God, is it not that you are with us? That is what makes us distinct. That is what makes us different from all of the surrounding nations. Now think about that in the ancient Near Eastern context. There's a lot of things that made ancient Israel very distinct from the other nations. I mean, weird dietary food laws. I mean, that's pretty distinct. Sabbath. No other ancient Near Eastern culture practiced Sabbath the way the Jewish people did. Circumcision. I mean, these are all distinct markers of God's people. But Moses says, no, what makes us distinct is, God, you are with us. Your presence with us makes us distinct. It's like this constant, and you keep kind of going through the story of the Hebrew Bible. God's presence is like this constant theme that permeates the whole thing. The building of the tabernacle, the building of the temple. God comes to dwell with his people. It's kind of like Tim Mackey says from the Bible Project. The temple and the tabernacle are like the hot spot of God's presence. God coming to dwell and be with his people. All throughout the Hebrew Bible. But then as you kind of get towards the end of your Old Testament, the story shifts. About 600 years before the time of Jesus, Jerusalem gets destroyed, the temple gets destroyed, and God's people are sent into exile thousands of miles to the east in the empire of Babylon. And this becomes this crucial moment in the story where pretty much the existential feeling for God's people is, God, where are you? Have you abandoned us? Yes, we've sinned. Yes, we have gone our own way. But God, where are you? Where is your presence? The temple has been destroyed. Everything from you being with us in the book of Exodus, where is all that? And then for centuries... God's people live in this state. God, where are you? And I don't know about you, maybe you can sort of relate to that feeling a little bit. Of God, where are you? God, are you going to show you? Know, I know for come and be faithful to your promises. You know, I know for me personally, this is this sort of feeling of God, where are you? This feeling of sort of homelessness or loneliness has been kind of something that we've been working through myself over the past year or so. It's kind of ironic. I don't know if ironic is the right word, but literally one year ago in a week, 53 weeks ago, was the, the last Sunday of our church plant that we led for a little over a year and a half over in Seaside. And that whole kind of process, I've shared a little bit about this before, so I'll be brief, but that whole process of, you know, starting that church and being a part of that and then coming to that decision of having to close it down because it wasn't working for a variety of reasons just left us in this feeling of, God, where are you in this? Like, we're, we're trying. We're, we're, we're doing what we think, God, you're calling us to. But God, where are you in this? And then closing it down and then, Finding out about Wellspring through a friend. I mean, to be honest, the first few weeks coming here, I did not want to be here. There's this feeling of, gosh, like, why is, it, why is this place, like, hopping? And then ours is, like, closing down kind of a thing, you know? <laughs> Just being honest. 
But I mean, over the course of, again, it's like literally this present to us. And seeing how God has been so faithful to be present to us and our family in those moments of God, where are you? And we had no idea that, you know, a few months later I'd be working here and we'd have a community here. Like, none of that was on the table. And through so many of you in this room, God has been faithful and present to us and our family. And I, I say that not because I think every story ends with like a pretty rainbow and a bow tie, but because at least in this instance, the cry of God, where are you, has been answered here in this place. And we're just so grateful for that. And as we think about that cry of God, where are you, from the Hebrew people, that cry is ultimately answered in the person of Jesus. Because Jesus comes in the incarnation, you turn and flip to your New Testament, the very first page in the New Testament, you read that Jesus is called Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. That Jesus has come to be God with us, living amongst his people, living in the brokenness of this world that we have created. He lives, he teaches, he heals people, he dies on a cross, rises again, ascends to the Father, and sends his Holy Spirit to us to be with us. Because Jesus says, I will be with you always, Matthew 28, to the very end of the age. It's all about person of Jesus and the gift of his Holy Spirit is present with us today. And this is what Advent is all about. Remembering the coming of Jesus, born in a manger, to be with us, to do for us what we can never do for ourselves. But Advent is not only about that first coming, it's also about the second Advent, the second coming, where we anticipate and long for the day for Jesus to return and make all things new, to wipe away every tear. And we live in this in-between time. Theologians call it the, the now and not yet, where we recognize, we know, we look out into the world, and we recognize things are not the way they should be. And so we pray and anticipate the return of Jesus to come again. You know, and the early church got this. The early church had this short little prayer. It's found a handful of times in your New Testament. It's actually found in the last paragraph of your Bible in the book of Revelation. It's a simple phrase. Maranatha. Maranatha, or Maranatha is how we usually say it in English. Maranatha simply means, come Lord Jesus. It's this prayer, it's this cry of God, come again. God, be with us. And this is what this Advent season is all about. Being, anticipating and longing for God to be with us. So in light of that, if that's the story of Advent anticipating and culminating in the person of Jesus, what then does it look like to pray in such a way where we prioritize the presence of God, where we pray Maranatha in our everyday sort of lives? You know, I think there's a lot we could say about this. And I think, you know, if we're being honest, when we're talking about prayer, at least for me, prayer is super hard. It's super difficult, at least to be consistent at. And we can kind of feel a little overwhelmed. I know for me, like, sometimes I'll read, like, older theologians and they'll say things about their prayer life. And I'm just like, I do not relate to that at all. Right? For instance, Martin Luther in the 16th century said, I have so much to do that I must spend the first three hours of my day in prayer. And you're like, well, I'm out. Right? 
Like, that's not me. So what does it look like then to begin to pray in such a way where it's not about like a checklist of things to do or, you know, praying through your list. And nothing wrong with praying through a list. But what does it look like to pray in such a way where it's about being with God? Tim Keller says it like this. Prayer is so great that wherever you look in the Bible, prayer is. Why? Everywhere God is, prayer is. Now what's Keller doing there? He's connecting the presence of God and being with God with prayer. And how those two intimately are connected. So what I want to do for the next few moments is then talk about, kind of go, let's go deeper with this, a little more practical. What does it look like to pray in such a way where we prioritize it as being with God? Now there's a lot we could say about this. I know for, for me as I was kind of preparing for this teaching, this was one of those teachings where I was kind of honestly dreading a little bit. Because for me, like, I, have, I should not be talking about prayer because I'm like the worst at it. You know, a few weeks ago I talked and taught about scripture reading. And not that I'm like amazing at that either. But I love the scriptures. That's what I'm super passionate about. And I was jazzed to talk about that. You know, and we have kind of like our teaching calendar a few you know, months out. And I knew I was going to be talking about prayer a few weeks later. And honestly, like on the inside, I was like, like what am I going to say about that? You know? And it's this feeling of like overwhelming a little bit. And you like open up your computer and you start thinking about And it's like the, the blank cursor of death. Right? <laughs> have you ever had that in college when you're supposed to write a paper and just the cl- cursor is just haunting you? And there's nothing on your paper at all. But I tell you... This experience, or else this teaching, it's been just a simple prayer of, God, you've got to be with me. Or else this thing's going to be a train wreck. God, be with me. And so maybe I just want to share personally a few things I think that I found helpful in praying in that way. God, be with me. Three, three things. And they all start with H. You do alliterations for these things. That's what you do. But the first one is Honesty. Honesty. And I think when we're talking about prayer, I think one of the major roadblocks for many of us, including myself with prayer, is that we think prayer has to be like this eloquent, theologically rich, polished thing where we come before God with our just perfect prose in just sinless perfection before the throne of grace. We might not actually say it like that, but I think sometimes we, in the back of our heads, think that a little bit. And let me just say that's a flat-out lie, that we have to have polished prayers in order to come before God. You know, I've heard it said, you know, multiple times, so this isn't my language. I'm pretty sure it's Keller. I could be wrong. But I've heard it said multiple times that prayer is not a place to be good. It's a place to be honest. A place to be honest. You know, Jesus tells this story in Luke 18 of, it's this parable between this Pharisee and this tax collector. The Pharisees were kind of like the moral, upstanding, upright people of the day. The tax collectors were like, the Pharisee he goes to the temple to pray. And Jesus tells this parable in Luke 18 where Jesus says, you know, the Pharisee, he goes to the temple to pray, and he prays like this eloquent prayer, God, thank you that I'm not like this dirtbag over here. I, I tithe, I pray, I'm just so great and amazing. And then the tax collector comes, and he can't even lift up his face. And his short little prayer is, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, That's what it's about right there. That man got it. He was honest. 
He didn't try to pretend. He was honest. John Tyson, he's a pastor in New York City, one of my favorite guys to listen to and, and read. He writes about prayer and honesty. And he has this short little phrase where he's, he's talking about prayer and being honest. He has this phrase. He says, pray what you've got. Pray what you've got. So if you've got anxiety and worry and stress in your life, pray what you've got. If you've got despair and uncertainty and anger in your heart, pray what you've got. And even if you've got gratitude and joy, pray what you've got. Don't pretend. You know, I think there's this, again, this lie that we believe that we have to have it all polished, all figured motives. Because you're not going to, my motives, my motives aren't right when I'm praying. Well, pray what you've got. Pray your motives. Because you're not going to fix your motives. Bring those before God and let him fix you. Let him heal you. C.S. Lewis says, let us lay before him what is in us rather than what ought to be in us. Lewis is getting at that exact same idea. Pray what you've got. Be honest. And then we see this all throughout Scripture. Some of the most famous characters in the Bible just prayed what they had. They didn't come all polished and ready to go with pristine prayers. Think of Moses. I talked about him a little bit ago. Some of Moses' prayers. On one hand, Moses would pray things like, Lord, these stiff-necked people, a.k.a. I hate my job, right? <laughs> and then on the other hand, Moses would pray, Lord, show me your glory. King David. King David would pray things like, Lord, dash their heads upon the rocks. It's a little morbid, but it's in the Bible. But then on the other hand, David would pray things like in the Psalms, one thing I ask, one thing I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What about Jesus? I mean, surely Jesus' prayers were just polished and perfect. I have you forsaken God, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Father, not my will, but yours be done. And you think about it. Jesus is constantly praying throughout the Gospels. You read the, the line that's kind of common, especially in Luke's Gospel. Jesus would often withdrew, withdrew to lonely places to pray. And you might ask the question, okay, what was Jesus praying in those moments? Were they like these pristine, eloquent, you know, prayers? I would argue, I'm sure some of that was, but I think Jesus was actually honest with the Father about the difficulty of his mission, about the things, the challenges that he faced. I was reading the book of Hebrews this, this past weekend. I came across this line. Hebrews 5 says this. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications, pay attention, with loud cries and tears. Jesus and the characters of scripture prayed what they had. They were honest. And this is why I think it's so important that we have a proper theology of lament, what it means to mourn and grieve and to be honest and make space for that in the church. Over two-thirds of the psalms can be categorized as lament psalms. Things like, how long, O Lord, Psalm 13. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, Psalm 22. Psalm 88, darkness is my only friend. And bring that. And what it means to be a Christian is not that everything's happy, clappy all the time, but we get to be honest and bring that before God. Derek Kidner is one of my favorite commentators on the psalms, says this about lament psalms and being honest. 
The very presence of such prayers in Scripture is a witness to God's understanding. He knows how we speak when we are desperate. And God invites us in those moments. He welcomes us in those moments. So as we think about what does it look like to pray and prioritize the presence of God, the first thing I would say is be honest. Be honest with where you're at before God. God can bear it. God can handle it. And maybe that's some of you this morning. You know, we talk about just the joy of Advent, the joy of celebration. But to be honest, some of the most difficult times for people can be during this Christmas season. And I think it's okay to recognize that life isn't always easy and good. And that we can be honest before our God in those moments. On the other side, too, I'd like to say not only is honesty important, but also hope. Hope. As we pray in such a way to be with God, what does it look like to pray with hope? You know, if we just kind of wallow in our despair and wallow in like the woe is me, self-pity of the world, we can kind of play the perpetual Eeyore card. And it's kind of like the woe is me sort of a thing. But God, if Advent is about anything, even the first candle is about hope. Is about the hope that we have in Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 1 says it like this. According to his great mercy, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Not just some abstract theory or theological word, but a living hope for your and I everyday life. See, honesty is great and important. We need that. But we also need hope in the midst of our pain and in our, in our brokenness. That if we just wallow in honesty, we could sink down into despair. But if we just have hope, if it's just all like pie in the sky, it's not really actually hope. You're just kind of annoying. But the two go together. Hope and honesty go together. Because again, we recognize that this world is not as it is supposed to be. And one day, Jesus, yes, will come again and make all things new. So we pray not only with honesty, but we also pray with great hope. Now, there's one more thing I want to talk about. We've talked about honesty. We've talked about hope. The last one I want to talk about is that of hurry. Hurry. Now, I I would argue and I would say that hurry is, at least for me and for I think many of us in this room, with a lot of spiritual discipline, praying and being, that hurry can be one of the main roadblocks to a life of praying and being with God in his presence. Dallas Willard, he's pretty famous for having this line where he says, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And ironically, we have that posted right above the coffee. So every time you get coffee on Sunday morning, you can read that. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry as you get caffeinated. But I'll also add to that, we must also ruthlessly eliminate distraction from our lives because the two go together. Hurry and distraction become these major roadblocks to actually slowing down and being with God. I mean, just read the Gospels. Read the life of Jesus. He is never in a hurry. He lives at what one author called a sacred pace. If anything, it's other people in the stories that are trying to get Jesus to go somewhere or do something and to rush him. But Jesus lived at a sacred pace. Present to the Father, present to those around him, present to what the Spirit was doing. And it allowed Jesus to have multiple occasions, regular rhythms of prayer. But here's the thing. 
if we're not careful, I think hurry leads to distraction. Especially in this type of season, right? With all the things, hurry and the business, ready for Christmas and shopping lists and Christmas parties, fun, amazing things. The hurry and the business of the season can lead to distraction. Where we get so overwhelmed with all the things we have to do that we're thinking we're paying attention to all these things, but really we're not paying attention to anything. And what can happen then, John Tyson again writes about how distraction can then lead to disillusionment. Distraction leads to disillusionment. Meaning what? Well, meaning, have you ever had those moments where, you know, you're in a regular rhythm, you're focused, you think you're focused, but then all of a sudden you pull the Instagram out and then 30 minutes later it goes by and you've been distracted, but then not only have you been distracted, you're kind of disillusioned now about your life, like, oh, my life's not as good as that person and, you know, they have a cool Instagram feed and what about mine and what about my wardrobe and my Christmas list? And you become disillusioned about life, right? Just me? <laughs> okay. But you have these moments, right? Or it's like four hours later, you've been watched a show, and nothing wrong with TV shows. They're fun. They're amazing. I mean, Disney Plus, Mandalorian, God bless it. Like, <laughs> it's important. But my point is, these things can lead to distraction, which leads to disillusionment. But at the flip side of that, again, borrowing from Tyson here, attention. If we can have to slow down and to be attentive, Attention leads to adoration. Attention leads to worship. In the midst of hurry, in the midst of busyness, how then do we slow down to be attentive to the voice of God? And we talk about prayer here at Wellspring, and prayer is under the A disciplines, A for attend. How do we be attentive to the presence of God in the midst of prayer? Again, distraction can move us sideways. Hurry can move us sideways. But Hebrews 2.1 says it like this. Let us pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away. Pay much closer attention to what we've heard. You know, this idea of drift, it's kind of this, you know, interesting idea, at least in my mind. You know, almost every Sunday after church, a few of us, we go swimming out in Lover's Point. Like, yes, that Lover's Point where it's freezing. And... Pretty much every week I get shamed into, like, getting in the water, and you guys know who you are. But the, th the thing is, is that when you're out there in the water, just kind of hanging out, floating on your back on a nice semi-warm day in PG, you can, if you're not paying attention, you can just drift into, like, no man's land. And it doesn't take that, it doesn't take any effort to drift. Intentional. A ton of effort to be attentive. It takes being intentional. And so with that said, with hope and honesty and hurry, how then do we even go a layer deeper and say, what does it look like to be attentive in prayer to the presence of God? Advent is about God coming to be with us. How then do we pray in such a way that we are with God? Two quick tips as we close. First one, start with where you're at, not with where you think you should be. Right? Don't do the Martin Luther, three hours of prayer, intercessory revival, you know, the building shakes and the spirit falls. No, no. Start with where you're at, not where you think you should be. And kind of like a helpful illustration with this. Think about, you know, like starting a fire. Right? We just moved to PG a couple weeks ago from Seaside. We have this little fire pit in our backyard. And, like, 
just being honest, I really have no idea what I'm doing with the fire pit. For me, heat comes by pushing a button in my house. Outside, heat like, requires chopped up wood and a lot of effort. But what I do know about fires, we had some friends over after we moved in to have a fire in our backyard. And basically, I had one of my friends, I'm like, hey, we're going to do a fire, but you're going to start it for me. So basically, you know, when you start a fire, right, there's like the first step is just getting it ignited a little bit. And it's just this small little spark, right? And then you add some kindling to it. And then start small, a fire or a bonfire. You don't just start with the big bonfire, you start small. And I think for many of us, especially for me, that struggle with prayer, I think the invitation is start small. What's that small little spark? For me, it's this, I've been trying to experiment with this a little bit. For, but for me, the way that I'm trying to get that spark of prayer in my life is with basically trying to end my day, the last five or ten minutes of my day, asking God two simple questions. God, where did I feel most close or present to you during my day and why? And God, where did I feel the most distant from you and why? It's kind of like a modified examine sort of a thing. But it's just kind of this simple way of being with God, reflecting upon my day, just Short, small, simple way. You know, whether it's you're laying in bed or you're on the couch, whatever. What does it look like, as Brother Lawrence says, to practice the presence of God in small, tangible ways? You know, at least I found for me, as I've kind of asked that question, God, where did I feel at least the most distant from you? Oftentimes, you begin to kind of see these themes of God speaking and God working in your heart. And pay attention to that, because that's God at work, I think. And at least for me, it's been the moments where I felt most distant from God. I'm not present to what's been in a hurry. When I have been rushed. Because I'm not present to what God is doing in that moment. I'm not present to other people. And that leaks out in anger, a short temper, the way I say things to my wife or my kids. And it's often because I'm not paying attention and slowing down. But I think that practice of ending our day, asking those simple questions... God, where were you present? Where, were, where did I feel distant and why? Can be this way of connecting with God, being present with God in prayer, because God wants to be with us. I think oftentimes the question then for us is, God, help me to be more aware that you are with me. Help me to pay attention to God that you are with me wherever. Second thing I want to say is not just make this solely an individualistic thing, but also praying for others. You know, hopefully as you came in the door this morning, you got a pray for five bookmark. And we like to have these and pass these out every so often. But these are just a simple way and reminder of just put names of three or four or five different people on that bookmark who maybe aren't experiencing the presence of God in this season. And simply pray for them. And maybe if you're being honest this morning, put yourself on the top of that list. If you would like more of God's presence in your life, I mean, feel free. Put yourself on that list. You know, a couple other things that I want to do, Tony, the next couple weeks, maybe you're wondering, like, how do I grow in prayer? How do I become a person of prayer? Well, Pastor Tony, the next couple weeks before service, 9.30 a.m., is going to be leading a kind of how to pray class. What does it look like to pray? So I'd encourage you to sign up for that. You can do that after the gathering out the double doors there. Come, 9.30 a.m., 9.30 to 10, just a half hour time, kind of looking over some practical ways. How do I pray? How do I grow in my prayer life? And then second thing, kind of more on the Advent side, we have over here 
in the fellowship hall these Advent family guides. Simple ways, there's a story for each day of Advent. There's also a weekly rhythm as well. Feel free to pick one of these up for you, your community, your family. Grab a roommate, a friend. Do it with your kids. There's some, some kids' activities in there as well. And these are just simple ways during this Advent season that we can slow down and be intentional about what the true meaning of this season is. You know, because honestly, friends, if we don't slow down and are attentive and remember and reflect upon what the true meaning of the season is, it's just going to be a whirlwind and we're gonna, it's going to fly right by. And so hopefully these are just a few ways that we can, as a community, both individually and together, learn what it means to slow down and to practice the presence of God to recognize that Advent is about God coming to be with us. And so we have the prince of our life. Boy, of praying and being with God in everyday moments of our lives. You know, with that said, I want to invite the worship team to come up. Also, if you're going to help serve communion, why don't you come up as well? We're going to take a few moments here. And celebrate communion together. You know, and communion is this beautiful opportunity to remember. You know, Jesus used that language as he talked about this, this last meal with his disciples. On the night before he was betrayed, he, he took the, the bread, he tore it, he dipped it in the cup, and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he had the glass of wine there, or the, not the glass, but the cup of wine and said, this is my blood poured out for many so that sins may be forgiven. Drink in remembrance of me. And so during this, this next song here, we want to invite you as followers of Jesus to come up down the center aisle. There will be a few of us up here ready to serve communion. And let this be a moment and opportunity to remember that God has come to be with us. And that he wants to be near that communion is a beautiful way in the language of James 4. Draw near to God. You would love someone to be near to you. And at the same time, as maybe you're in a season right now where you would love someone to pray with you. You know, we have people in the back that they would love to pray with you. You know, maybe it's an opportunity for you to be honest about what's going on in life. So we have some folks in the back that would love to pray with you. But with that said, why don't we stand together and pray. <laughs> Jesus, you are here with us. Help us to know that. Not just know that in our heads, but just on a deep, deep personal level. That God, you want to be with us. The cross is your declaration of your love for us despite our brokenness. That you love us, you are for us, and that you want to be with us. So Holy Spirit, come, move in this place, move in our lives. Shape us, transform us, that we might become more like Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen.